Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 27th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Susan Lin, author of the book Who's Raising the Kids, Big Tech, Big Business and the Lives of Children. In the book, Lin, who is one of the world's leading experts on the impact of big tech and big business on children, explores the roots and consequences of this monumental shift towards a digitalised, commercialised childhood focusing on kids' values, relationships and learning. From birth, kids have become lucrative fodder for a range of tech, media and toy companies. From producers of exploitative games and social media platforms to educational technology and branded school curricula of dubious efficacy. Noting that many Silicon Valley elites wouldn't dream of exposing their kids to the very technologies they've unleashed on other people's children, Who's Raising the Kids is a unique, highly readable social critique and guide to protecting kids from exploitation by the tech, toy and entertainment industries. It was great discussing the book with Susan. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Susan, you're an author, psychologist and a very talented ventriloquist, so your engagement with children and their well-being expands deeply on a professional, creative and personal level for which you've received many honours and awards for. What is the oversized and under-regulated role big tech plays in children's lives? Children are spending an enormous time with technology. I mean, not just screens. A lot of the toys they play with are also smart toys or tech toys. And I think what people have to remember is, first of all, that the devices that we love so much are primarily designed to sell us and our kids stuff. That's basically what they were designed for. And also that advertising and marketing to kids, which today mostly comes through big tech, it doesn't just market products, it markets values and behaviors. And the values that are so much a part of commercialized culture aren't good for kids. I mean, they're not good for families and they're really not good for the planet. For instance, the primary value is the belief that the things we buy will make us happy. But what research tells us is that the things we buy may make us happy for a little while, but it's not any kind of sustained happiness. I mean, what makes us happy are uh, relationships or experiences. But if you believe that the things you buy will make you happy, so what do you do? You buy a thing, but the thing doesn't make you happy. So then what do you do? Well, you believe that things will make you happy, so you buy another thing, a bigger thing, a better thing. That works great for corporations, but it doesn't work so well for kids or for their parents who keep shelling out money for these things. And in fact, what research also tells us is that kids with materialistic values who believe that happiness lies in the next purchase are actually less happy than kids who are not so invested in materialism. And when was it that this tide began to change, would you say? The 1980s. 
It started a little bit before that. In the 1980s, what we had was the deregulation of children's television, where it became okay to create a program for the sole purpose of selling toys. But it was also when the technology just began to develop at breakneck speed. So it was no longer just television. It was videos and then DVDs and video games and so on to where we are today with apps and smartphones and tablets and now what's approaching robots and the metaverse. Even though there is a strong emphasis on children in the book, you also make reference to adults. Um, if grown adults alone are struggling with abstaining from big tech, such as social media, big businesses and their brands, mobile phones, what chance is it do the children have? It's a real problem. The amount that adults use tech and the way that, that so many of us believe that it's important for children to use it, that's one of the ways it's marketed to adults is that children need to use tablets so they'll be prepared for the future. But that's actually completely ridiculous because the technology is going to change and being able to swipe and tap and do what you do with the tablet is not going to help kids get jobs. It's not going to help them thrive in a tech-saturated culture. Really, they need the things that we can't get from corporations and that we can't get from screens, really. These big companies, they want kids to buy their toys and their main purpose is to make their shareholders profits. However, part of their tactics include actually working to undermine the parents as gatekeepers, isn't it? How do they actually manage to yes. do this? Well, one thing that they do is to target kids directly with advertising and with advertising that is so incredibly irresistible. I mean, it used to be 30 second or 15 second commercials on television, but now we have influencers who are kids doing unboxing videos, which are just all about how wonderful this particular toy is. And these videos are very popular with kids, but they're also very powerful advertising. And there's also advertising within apps, so in-app advertising, or if kids are using an app that's marketed as free, they can only do so much with it, and then they're being told that they need to get the premium versions. So the advertising is just incredibly sneaky and manipulative. And what they're doing really is convincing kids to nag their parents for stuff. So that's one way that they come between parents and children. And that's a known marketing technique. It's acknowledged in marketing literature that that's a way of getting parents to buy things is to go through the kids. It's called the nag factor or pester power, which sounds more refined, but actually it's the same thing. Hmm. And 
there was a part in the book where you mentioned how some of these companies will advertise an app as educational. But once again, there's little educational value. And instead, the kids are being bombarded with pay more to open another aspect of the app that will allow them to use it a lot more efficiently or etc or even when you look at games such as Fortnite as well I think it's free to download but what separates them from other kids I guess is the extra skins and the dances that you can buy as well isn't it yes I don't think that Fortnite advertises itself as educational but it is supposed to be free But what happens is that they have these new versions that they put out every couple of months. And like you said, skins that they can buy to decorate their avatars. And what happens in these sandbox games, which is where you're not just playing by yourself, but you're playing with other people and you can see the avatars of the other people. So you can see which kids have the money to buy more stuff. And so it kind of foments envy. And so that's the kind of peer pressure that maybe used to take place in school or on the playground or on the street. But now it's built into these games. They're using children's vulnerabilities in order to sell them stuff. Absolutely. Now, each time in the book when you mentioned collectible toys, it struck a serious chord with me because I used to religiously collect Pokemon cards as a child. Sure. And would you mind touching on the dangers of those type of toys, collectible toys? Yeah. And I know lots of people who grew up with Pokemon or kids today who love Pokemon and who do draw them or do fun things with them. It's not Pokemon itself that's the problem, it's the business model. Like one way that toys are sold to kids today is as part of a set. And it's like a never-ending set because they're always introducing new ones. And so you're always being tempted to get something new, to complete the set, but then you never complete the set. And it kind of goes on and on like that. And Pokemon's tagline, which I think is gotta get them all, right? Gotta catch them all. (laughs) Gotta catch them all, that's right. It's brilliant, you know? It's also diabolical because that's the message. You've gotta catch them all. They might as well be saying you've gotta buy them all. And Pokemon is just one toy that is being sold as sets. Another one that I write about in the book are LOL dolls. They're so terrible for the environment. It's just unbelievable. I mean, basically, these LOL dolls, which are marketed as sets, by the way, they come with just layer after layer after layer of plastic and plastic toys. And this is at a time when the oceans are being destroyed by plastic, when we're so concerned about the environment, and yet kids are being sold constantly these toys that, and again, you never finish. Even if you complete a set of LOL dolls, there's another set that you can get. And one poignant story that a mom told in the book was about, this is a person who is very interested in social justice, and her kids know that. And so her child 
who tried all sorts of ways of getting the mom to buy LOL dolls, finally said, you know, mom, the LOL dolls are made by the Chinese. And it's not fair to the Chinese that we don't buy these LOL dolls, <laughs> which is brilliant. That's one very smart child. I mean, it's understandable that they lobby for what they want or they try to get what they want. But what's really creepy and terrible is to have these multinational corporations and big tech companies doing everything they can to persuade kids to nag their parents. To the extent that the advice of telling a parent just to say no is pretty undermining, isn't it? I think you used an analogy. Telling parents just to say no is as effective as telling a drug addict just to say no. It's more complicated than that. I mean, we want our children to be happy. We do. We love them. We want them to be happy. And encouraging kids to nag or encouraging kids to believe that the only way they can be happy is with all this branded stuff, it's cruel, really. And the tech companies say, of course, that it's just up to parents, that they have no responsibility, it's up to the parents. And parents certainly have an important role to play, but it's just ridiculous to think that one family can combat these zillion-dollar industries working day and night to come between parents and children. Absolutely, especially when these billion-dollar industries also have other families and people around that parent that are endorsing their products as well. I suppose it will be very difficult for that family to maintain what they're trying to do in abstaining. Yes, and I think it, just as kids are marketed that they need, forgive me for using the example, but they need Pokemon in order to be happy, parents also are being sold that, even to babies, that you need to get babies Elmo products, as if babies are born loving Elmo or SpongeBob SquarePants or Spider-Man. I mean, they're not. We train them to need those products. They're not born that way. Speaking of branded products, I didn't really look at toys in this way until I actually listened to the, your audiobook. And it's just the idea of the passive and the active toys, as well as the toys that make noise and the toys that are there for a child to be creative in terms of its usage of it. Would you mind elaborating on the difference between the two, Susan? Sure. The new toys, the chip-enabled toys that chirp and beep and do backflips and move and talk on their own, those are really good for advertising. You take 15 seconds of a clip of a toy doing all sorts of things, it looks like fun. But really, those toys have no value to children because all the kids are doing is pushing a button and eventually that just gets boring. So really, the best toys and the toys that are the most useful to kids and the toys that kids will play with longer are toys that are now thought of as old-fashioned and retro. They're toys that just lie there 
until somebody picks them up and transforms them or gives them uses. And the saying that I like is a good toy is 90% child and only 10% toy. Because if a toy does everything by itself, the toy may be having fun, but what's happening to the child who is just incredibly passive? And what's ironic is that these toys and also screen-based activities for kids, they're marketed as interactive, but they're not necessarily interactive. They're more reactive because the child is reacting to what the toy is doing. The child is not initiating and creating and following through. And those skills, initiation, creativity, the capacity to follow through on something, those are incredibly important skills for kids to develop. Must we be skeptical of products and apps and devices that use artificial intelligence and algorithms? I think that we have to be skeptical of corporations and the intent of corporations. I mean, I've been accused of being tech-phobic. I'm not tech-phobic. I tweet and post and do all that, and I wrote my book on a laptop, and I worked in television. There's a lot of potential with technology, but the business model is toxic. The business model, which is to capture our attention and our children's attention and keep it at any cost and without regard to whether what's happening is good for kids. And I think what we have to be concerned about and why we have to remember that this is not just a family problem, it's a societal problem and we need to deal with it as a society is that the technology is only getting more powerful and more seductive and more engaging. Mark Zuckerberg and others are pushing the metaverse. And now I've seen articles written by respected educators talking about the educational potential of the metaverse. But what they never mentioned is who owns the metaverse, what kind of marketing is going to be going on in the metaverse. And that's naive or willfully naive. I don't know which it is. And it's also destructive. Yes, all of that technology can be really beneficial, but we need to think about who owns it and how they make their money. I think calling you a technophobe is a bit of a stretch personally as well. <laughs> you know, like even when I was listening to the audiobook, I think just when it comes to technology, it's, it's all about optimization, isn't it? Like using it so it serves us rather than the other way around. And I feel yes. as though at the moment, it's definitely the other way around, especially because these companies are powerful. They're, they're, a lot of their business models is based on how long they can keep your child engaged for on wh whichever toy or app it is or et cetera, isn't it? Yes. You know, as I've said, the business model is toxic. It's toxic for adults. It's especially toxic for children. And what it does is, at a minimum, it keeps kids away from things that we know are beneficial to them. Reading, being read to, 
you know, there's a lot of research of how important it is to read to young children, actively exploring the world with all of their senses, being in relationship to other people. Nature, we know what's good for kids, and it's not being in front of a screen all day. And I think that one thing that the lockdowns did is it made everybody more aware of why that's a problem, not just for kids, but for adults as well. So yeah, it's not that it's not beneficial. And the one benefit I think that we found during the pandemic is video chatting for kids to be able to video chat with the adults who love them who are far away. That's beneficial to kids. children, they're the future generation and you want them to be equipped with the full spectrum of knowledge to make good decisions that's within their best interests as well as their children's best interests as well. Would you mind saying, Susan, what branded learning is? Branded learning is, well, it's a couple of things. And one of them is when the materials in a school are designed by corporations and marketed by corporations. And that's a problem because the main purpose of most corporations is to generate profit. And so the reason that they're in schools is either to inculcate lifetime brand loyalty. I mean, when Apple gives out iPads to kindergartners, it's not because iPads are beneficial necessarily to kindergartners, but they're beneficial to Apple because the whole phenomenon of lifetime brand loyalty, which is like the brass ring in or the gold ring or whatever it's called for corporations. A brand loyal customer, lifetime brand loyalty is worth a lot financially to a corporation. So that's one thing. And the other is to make sure that what kids are learning in schools doesn't undermine the goal of corporations. And that's why oil companies have all of these materials in schools that talk about the environment or talk about fossil fuels, but they don't talk about the role that fossil fuels are playing in undermining and harming the environment. So if you go through, and I did, a lot of corporate-sponsored teaching materials or branded teaching materials, it's not even so much what they say as what they don't say, what gets left out. And that's a problem. And the schools are struggling financially. Um, Teachers are struggling to get good quality materials And these materials come in, they bypass school boards, they come directly to the teachers, and they're pretty, or they're glossy, they look good. The kids might even like them, but the quality of what they're learning is helpful for corporations, but it undermines 
children's learning, including their capacity for critical thinking. A quote that I got from your book actually is, if we care enough about our children, we'll limit the amount of advertising they're exposed to. So Susan, what is it that the US government has done to try and regulate all these practices from big tech and big companies? And in your opinion, has it been effective? Well, so far they haven't done much. So the answer to the last part of your question is no, it's not effective because they haven't done much. But interestingly, there's a lot of terrible stuff going on in the world right now. But this is the first time where it's looked even a little hopeful that that might change. There are bills in the Senate that got out of committee that actually have bipartisan support that would limit the ways that big tech companies can target children. And so as an activist, I mean, I've been doing this work for over 20 years. That's a big accomplishment, just to even have them in Congress, whether they'll pass or not, whether they'll even make it to the Senate floor, I don't know. But the fact that they're there is a big deal. I think that that's hopeful. The California legislature actually passed legislation that does limit the ways that big tech can target kids. And Britain passed a design code as law that companies have to take the well-being of children into consideration when they design websites. So I think that the stranglehold that big tech has had, they've got huge amounts of money and tons and tons of power and lobbyists, you know, it might be loosening. I'm more hopeful than I ever have been that this could change. And, you know, it's really essential that it does. I mean, they need to be regulated the way like utilities are regulated. So lastly, Susan, imagine being a parent who takes on the advice in the book and is really all about, let's say, fighting the good fight. But everyone around their child has these passive toys or plays Fortnite or has phones with all these apps as well. What is it that that parent can do? And how hard would you say will it be for them to maintain the standards, let's say, as you mentioned? So one thing I think it's important to sort of preface what I'm going to say is I didn't write the book to make parents feel guilty. They shouldn't feel guilty that they're not coping purposely with this incredible, big tech-enabled, troubling phenomenon. It's hard to be a parent today. So one thing is it's easier to start when kids are little, even babies, to start from the beginning, because it's easier to give things than to take it away. It's harder if your kids have been immersed in tech and you decide to cut it back. That's hard. It's doable, but it's hard. And it's easier if you can find other families who share your values. It's hard to do this alone. But one thing that I think that you can talk to your children about, if you are the only one, the only family that is setting some limits on these things, is that families are different and the same, and they have different values. And yes, your friend's family do this. We do things differently in this family, and this is why. And I think you need to be prepared that your child's going to be unhappy about that, or may be unhappy. And I think it's important to validate those feelings. I know you don't like it. It's hard 
for or harder for you or it feels hard for you, but these are our values. And really, for parents, the, the most important thing that we pass down to our children are our values. That was Susan Lin, author of the book Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business and the Lives of Children. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or give a listen to. A big thank you for Susan for coming onto the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the other previous episodes if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you in the next.